a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. Welcome to today's episode on the podcast. I'm so grateful you're here and I'm so excited about this episode. I've got the most amazing expert lined up for you. But before I welcome Harin, I wanted to talk to you about why I was planning this specific and very important episode for the Menopause and Cancer podcast. Often at the beginning or towards the first couple of months of a new year, I get loads of messages from people in my Facebook community or women emailing me or reaching out on social media saying, I'm going to change my diet or I'm going to change how I move. I'm going to really ramp up the supplements. The beginning of the new year often gives us newly found motivation, a bit of a new mojo to do things differently, maybe to become more healthy or to actually start tackling some of the debilitating side effects, perhaps, we have been put up with for too long. People have brought up genomic testing to me, thermography for imaging, for breast imaging, for example. People are still really worried about managing aromatose inhibitors, the side effects of being on tamoxifen, and other things they can do, like bringing down the inflammatory markers to maybe help their symptoms. But when I then speak to these women and people a little bit more in depth, often they don't actually know what all of those things mean that they're trying to do. They haven't got a big plan. These are words that get thrown around on social media sometimes by celebrities or by social media doctors. But what does it actually mean, inflammatory markers? What do they mean to you? What do they mean to me? And how can they be used effectively so that we don't just waste our time and try a bit of this and that, so that we have a plan? And those are exactly the conversations I would like to have with my guest for today's podcast. She's Dr. Nina Fuller-Chavelle, and she's an incredibly knowledgeable woman. She's an integrative medicine doctor, a scientist and educator with degrees in medicine and natural sciences from Cambridge. And as well, she's got an ongoing master's of science in precision cancer medicine at the University of Oxford. Nina is also a fellow of the College of Medicine and the co-chair of the BSIO, the British Society for Integrative Oncology. And alongside all of her scientific and medical training, she also has so many other qualifications from nutrition to integrative medicine, functional medicine, health coaching, herbal medicine, yoga, mindfulness, oh my gosh, so many more things. I don't know how she packs it all in because she, she can't even be 
40, 45 yet. I don't actually know. I forgot to ask her. <laughs> but regardless, what I am so fascinated to talking to Nina about is Nina doesn't poo-poo anything. She holds and accredits value to everything, but she's got a really good head in trying to bring different disciplines together. And from her, I want to know how we can all do that at home. She is really great at calling out things that aren't necessary and really introducing things to us that are important. And she will talk about diet and lifestyle and exercise, all of these other things. Nina used to work in the NHS. She talks about her own cancer diagnosis as well. And she's then gone on and founded the Synthesis Clinic, which is an award-winning multidisciplinary medicine practice in Hampshire. And Nina shares really beautifully from all her experience in clinic, all her personal experience. And yeah, she's just amazing. So if you're thinking you want to ramp up what you're doing, maybe change your diet, maybe look at the way you move or start supplements or anything like that this year, then I think this is going to be a really useful and helpful episode for you. And with that, I'm going to welcome Nina. Welcome, Nina, to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I have just introduced you and your biography is incredible. I mean, how much can you fit into one brain? (laughs) (laughs) I try very hard. I do tend to do several things at once, hence, hence the long list. Oh, it's such an honor and a pleasure to talk to you because I have so many questions and I know we're not going to get through all of them, but we'll tackle we'll tackle all the questions that I see in my group, that women ask me all the time, that come up at workshops. And I think there's quite a lot of confusion out there. So you are an integrative medicine doctor. Yes. yes. <laughs> Tell me what that is. What is the difference to our normal NHS doctors that we might have seen going through cancer treatment or when we had help managing our our menopause? So integrative medicine, I think it's really useful to introduce us in general first before I describe how I practice it. So integrative medicine really aims at integrating the best of conventional medicine. So that's the best normal conventional NHS or private treatment with also having good nutrition, lifestyle support, psycho-emotional well-being and evidence-informed complementary therapies. So it is trying to rationally marry up the best of all worlds to treat the whole person and not just their symptoms and also not just the disease. And that's a really big deal for me in integrative oncology, because of course, quite often when we get diagnosed with cancer, the focus is entirely on the tumor and very much not on the person. And actually what we need is we need a much broader focus and a bigger toolkit to support people who are going through the cancer treatment and following treatment and recovery to be able to get the best clinical outcomes and really support people's resilience. So of course, this is a really big thing, right? All sorts of things could come into it. Um, And so the way I practice it personally is I am conventionally medically trained. So I used to work in the NHS, but I now run my own private clinic called Synthesis Clinic. So I've got all of that training and I've also trained in natural sciences. So I bring both the science and the medicine bit. But I also have qualifications in nutrition, health coaching, integrative and functional medicine, herbal medicine, including traditional Chinese medicine, uh, yoga, mindfulness, and a number of other things. So when someone comes to see me, they get the benefit of the conventional medicine background that I bring to the table, my background in, in effectively what we call internal general medicine. 
as well as all of the other things that I've learned along the way. And so the plan that people can get from me will incorporate all of their conventional treatment. And I will always look at that because I need to support that. But it will also include advice on nutrition, lifestyle, sleep, psycho-emotional well-being, and any other things that might be useful. It's like the dream. <laughs> Most Thank people's you. dream. I'm trying to make it the reality everywhere. That's the, that's the mission. You keep on, keep on. So in a way, when I speak to people and in preparation for the podcast today, I said to people, what is it that you've done in your cancer healing or recovery or managing your menopause? And people say, oh, no, just just the normal, just what the doctor, you know, just the normal conventional treatment. But really, when you dig a little bit deeper, each one of those people were also their very own integrative practitioner, because most people I speak to tinker with their diet. They try and move a little bit differently. We know of the benefits of exercise. Many people take supplements. They try and buy perhaps some herbal medication over the counter. I'm not saying we're all doing it well and right. And I know I got all these things partly wrong and partly right <laughs> when I tried to be my own functional medicine doctor. But in a way, so many people do this anyway, this other part, we feel cancer treatment might have stopped. And now what do I do? So we do that anyway. But most people feel a bit lost. There is no real guidance. We don't really know where to go. And it's a bit like trying a little bit of this and trying a little bit of that and then seeing what sticks and what resonates. Yeah. And you just bring the evidence and the science and the methods into this to make it actually work and our efforts count, right? And I think that's ultimately what people try and do alongside their treatment, but not necessarily considering their treatment fully is what I would say is called more complementary medicine, because ultimately yes. you're then just trying to complement what you're doing, but you're not really integrating. And that's where I feel sometimes yes. professional input is so important because otherwise you're running two parallel tracks. The conventional treatment runs its own course and you do something complementary. And that's that's great. That's still a fantastic start and much better than not doing anything and handing all your power over, which I am absolutely not for. So from my perspective, the integration is, though, more than this. It's one plus one equals three, four, eight. So it's not about parallel tracks, it's about the synergy that can happen if we truly understand how the conventional treatment affects you as a person and how what you can do on your side can then affect, effectively improve maybe clinical outcomes, reduce side effects, optimize resilience, improve what we call the performance status, the overall fitness of a person to receive treatment. Because sometimes decision, you know, decisions about treatment are made on that. How fit are you to receive treatment? And if you're not doing anything for yourself on that, then actually you could miss out on a, an intervention because no one's told you you can actually support yourself. And that's what yeah. I would really love to see change in oncology is that I think we need to, at the very moment when we've given someone an incredibly disempowering and shocking diagnosis, is we need to also tell people there are also things you can do to support yourself please speak to your nurse if you're interested in finding out more and then direct them to reputable providers of information that they can then find out rather than the frantic Googles that most of us do, frankly, about health information. <laughs> At three o'clock in the morning when exactly. insomnia really kicks in and you think, wow, this sounds great. And then the next morning you've forgotten what it was. <laughs> and then <laughs> in that the first it disrupts your melatonin, which is not a good thing. <laughs> 
Right, Nina, to become an integrative oncologist practitioner, doctor, did this become before or after your own cancer diagnosis? So that came after. I um, just want to be very clear. I'm not an oncologist. So my training is in general medicine. So I'm not an oncologist, but I work with oncologists. So where my place sits is as a specialist input to work alongside your normal oncology team. Um, and we have a number of post-referral from private oncologists because we're a private clinic. So my own journey is quite interesting. So I've been in integrative healthcare for over a decade. They came way before my own diagnosis of breast cancer. And medicine is actually my third degree, as you know, kind of went through natural sciences, then I did nutrition and medicine was my third degree. And it's only really when I was working in the NHS as a trainee doctor that really my health started to deteriorate. And in a way, at first, it was really more about mental health, trying to work in a health service that I could see was broken in a way that was quite fundamental. And I would be called to people in the middle of the night with a blood sugar of 24 because they're type 2 diabetic. Um, and there was a packet of tuck next to them. And I'm like, well, there's a packet of biscuits next to you that you've just eaten. And I'm now being called to fix your insulin. Surely we should be tackling that problem and the counseling a bit better. So therefore, I'm not rushing around the hospital trying to fix something that's entirely preventable. But also the other things that I was, was very frustrated with is that kind of very blinkered view. As someone who was trained in science and nutrition, I have a very open, broad view of human physiology and pathology. And I was just seeing us doing the blinkered kind of appeal for each ill, stitch them up and send them out kind of thing. And it becomes very frustrating for someone who's a caring clinician because you're doing the crazy hours, you know, the kind of 12 days on, one day off type shifts. And you're just not making a difference. You might be making a cute difference, but you know you're going to see them again in, you know, six, eight, 12 weeks. They're going to bounce back in with another complication of their condition. So really did it did affect my mental health. Of course, the shift work, I also had a three, three-year-old daughter on my hands. So all of that in terms of get, going in and doing a 12, 13-hour shift, coming back and being up in the night because of various things that are going on there. And then I got diagnosed with my own breast cancer. And in a way, I think that knowing how stubborn I am, I'm, I'm glad that it, well, it had to take something as big as that to divert me from trying to fit a square peg of me with my very broad view into the round hole of this is just the biomedical bit. So, and I, I love biomedicine. I think there's a lot of fantastic stuff that goes on there, but I just think that we need to be a little bit cleverer and a little bit broader and consider all of the lifestyle and integrative input we can do. So yes, and then, yeah, I went through my own of her two grade three breast cancer diagnosis. Um, I went through treatment for that. And then as a part of that, I've decided kind of enough is enough. And I started making preparations for creating my own integrative clinic. So taking out some of the best bits that I love about the NHS, which is a multidisciplinary team, um, and taking it out into private practice. So creating a team of professionals around me that all communicate clearly together on a weekly basis, or sometimes twice a week, to be able to really support people and hold them in a team setting. And that's kind of how it evolved from there, really. So when you had your own diagnosis and then you had conventional treatment, what else did you do with the knowledge you have to support yourself? We will talk about testing a little bit further on, but what is it that you thought you wanted to change? Because often 
people think we need to change something because we kind of think whatever we've done didn't work. So you alluded, it was your crazy working hours, it was your lifestyle, it was also working in an environment that really didn't match your um, sort of your needs and what you wanted to create. So it was that. But what else did you think you want, needed to change after your diagnosis to support yourself? Well, I think the fundamental bit was the, the lifestyle did have to change because ultimately, you know, even though I was eating reasonably well, having the night shifts, having not enough sleep, all the stress that comes with it. And to be honest, I didn't have with a young child and my medical job, I just did not have enough time for exercise, which I used to do a lot of. So I've definitely reprioritized everything that I've frankly been neglecting because of the job and childcare and everything else. And so I've had to suddenly look at kind of the pyramid of my life. And as I think many women and mothers do, we realize we're at the bottom of the pile. Mm-hmm. And we suddenly go, hold on a second. Hmm. Maybe being squished at the bottom of the pile or even put in the basement of my own life, maybe is probably not the right answer. So that's when I had to drag myself out. And I, I said to my uh, consultants who were amazing, I had a fantastic surgeon and fantastic oncologist. In fact, I had two surgeons. And I said to them, look, you nuke me, you do what you need to do. I will obviously tell you what I'm happy with. And I've done all the research. So for example, I chose to go for a mastectomy rather than lumpectomy or radiotherapy because of the increased risk in younger women of radiotherapy long-term. And that was kind of my negotiated choice between me and my medical team. But I said, I'm also going to do everything I can to support myself. And actually, in a way, just seeing me go through six months of chemotherapy, then two operations, and my well, my plastic surgeon laughs at me. He says, I was with them for all about three seconds because after a, a really long operation in a high dependency unit stay, I was out within 72 hours. But that's because I did something for it. I wasn't lying on my laurels thinking, yes, I've got a great medical team. Like, yes, I do, but it's also up to me. So I've reprioritized, I've continued with nutrition. I've tightened it up. I have definitely reprioritized exercise significantly. And that changed during my treatment. So during the EC chemo phase, I didn't have a lot of energy. So I ran around after my three-year-old and did yoga. And on the day, on the weeks that my uh, blood counts were particularly low, I had someone come and do one-to-one with me. For example, I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. And these days we now have online, we didn't, just didn't have that amount of provision when, when I was um, going through my treatment. And then um, the other things I did was also dealing with other stuff that were going on, was going on trauma, because I have a history of trauma that I was just kind of powering through effectively. So I did get some psychological support for that. And I did EMDR. I did a lot of mindfulness uh, and my body work. Um, and I did do some supplementation, again, carefully checked for interactions. But I think what was really key for me is that I was able to find that information because I can go into PubMed which is kind of like a Google, I guess, for scientific papers, I can draw up a list of things from the evidence that I see, but why should only someone with medical or scientific training be able to benefit from that? And I could still hear people say, oh, nutrition doesn't matter or whatever, whatever you do doesn't matter. And I'm like, that's actually not an evidence-based statement in any way, shape or form. And I can show you the papers to prove it. So- Let's, before you go on, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, because we have these two sort of groups out there and then there's all the greys in between. And the one group saying 
supplements don't work, probiotics don't work, whatever you eat doesn't work. And food is definitely not medicine. For me, food is really medicinal, might not be an antibiotic, of course not, but it's healing in when I prepare it, when I eat it, when I sit around a table with my family. And that's even before we talk about the nutrients that are in my food. So I will always argue food for me has been a massive medicinal part of my own journey. But do you have actual evidence, like scientific evidence, rather than my anecdotal evidence, that the way you eat makes a difference once you've had a cancer diagnosis? We know about the overall sort of benefits for overall health, but you talked about We do. And I think in a way, going back to the general bit first is that nature medicine agrees with you. So nature is one of the most highly rated scientific journal groups ever. Okay. And I've just actually reposted on my LinkedIn, a whole paper about food is medicine, how should we should be looking beyond just food security into nutrient security, actually. So there are leading scientists and medics who are agreeing with this. There is a 300 plus page report from the World Cancer Research Fund Foundation that details meticulously with hundreds of references the relation between nutrition and cancer risk. And that's obviously before you get cancer. But nutrition doesn't matter is absolutely not an evidence-based statement. Mm. What we also know, and again, the studies, we do need to do more robust studies. And I think that's absolutely a criticism that I completely accept. But there's also a number of studies that show, for example, eating a more anti-inflammatory diet is associated with better survival in gynecological cancers, particularly ovarian cancer and breast cancer. So we already have this data. Mm. There's a number of people who are looking into, of course, the links between the gut microbiome and, of course, what we eat is the fundamental way affect the gut microbiome. And just even things like eating 20 grams of fiber a day was shown to improve immunotherapy response in patients with melanoma who were on immunotherapy. That wow. is a direct wow. effect. So to me, no one can say nutrition doesn't matter because it absolutely does. Mm -hmm. And now we are finding out the links via which it does. So regulating inflammation, supporting a healthy gut microbiome and myriad of other effects, nutrients are epigenetic modulators, ultimately. So it can actually affect the way that your genes are expressed. And yes, we've got to do more robust, what we call interventional studies. So give everybody the food, make sure that they follow the diet plan, and then monitor outcomes over, you know, two, five, 10 years. Those studies absolutely need to be done. But I think there's enough evidence that actually an anti-inflammatory whole food-based diet rich in colorful phytonutrients does affect the way we handle cancer and the way we can potentially also synergize with treatment like immunotherapy. Thank you for being so clear. I have inflammatory markers and anti-inflammatory diet on my little list to talk to you about. So you're bringing me into this because so many women talk about an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. Even now, when I look in, in the media and recent celebrities being sadly diagnosed with breast cancer, it's all about removing toxins uh, from skincare, from household, from all of those things. It's all about reducing inflammation markers. But what are they? What do they actually mean? Good question. I mean, to be honest, uh, removing things like endocrine disrupting chemicals has more of an impact on something else rather than necessarily your inflammatory status. But um, let's kind of step back to the inflammatory markers. So yeah. 
There are a number of things that you can get on a normal doctor's blood test that can show people the inflammatory status. So normally most people will get a full blood count. So that just lists all sorts of different blood cells. And what we look at is neutrophils and lymphocytes. And we divide neutrophils by lymphocytes or platelets by lymphocytes. And we get what we call an NLR or a PLR. And that's neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio or platelet to lymphocyte ratio. And if those are elevated, we know that someone is more inflamed. We also have some of the other markers that are available to us. So CRP or C-reactive protein, ESR, which is erythrocyte sedimentation rate. And we also can look at ferritin. Now, ferritin, people think, oh, it's a marker of iron status. Well, actually, it's also an inflammatory marker because it rises if your inflammation levels rise. So quite often, if someone is truly significantly inflamed, you would have their CRP elevated and your ferritin usually will come up at least a little bit. And sometimes all of the markers are elevated. You know, there are a number of people who are, metaphorically speaking, on fire in terms of inflammation. And regulating that does make a difference because if someone is significantly inflamed, then, for example, again, they might not benefit from immunotherapy as much. We know that the outcomes might be different. Also, in people who have really significantly kicked up their inflammation, and if it's happened within a very short space of time, that can indicate a state that they're tipping into the precachectic state, so starting to lose weight, starting to get really significant metabolic dysregulation. That's obviously an advanced cancer. So overall, we want to try and manage inflammation really, really well, because it not only affects how we feel, for example, um, we talk about menopause and cancer. So women who get given aromatase inhibitors, what's really fascinating about it is that we're now finding that women who have a triad of symptoms with joint pains, insomnia and fatigue have elevated inflammatory markers. So oh, wow. how interesting would it be to do an intervention that's anti-inflammatory and then see if that triad of symptoms improves? And that's what and we'd joint- love to study. And joint pain and that overall body pain is so significant with women who are on aromatose inhibitors and tamoxifen as well. It's often women say it's really crippling. It stops them in their tracks and they're even deciding whether they can fathom to stay on the treatment because they are in so much pain. But what makes us higher inflamed and what makes us reduce or lose that inflammation A number of things, really. I mean, starting from obviously nutrition, because that's foundational from our perspective. So making sure that we are eating a non-refined food diet. So we talk about whole food based diet. That means that really we want to avoid these highly refined products, highly refined fats, those really damaged seed oils, white refined products, you know, white flowers, etc. And we want to opt for whole foods. So things that don't have labels or things that have minimal ingredients. And I often tell my patients that if you read the back of the label and you can't pronounce it, your body can't. If you don't know what the heck that is, it's probably not food. So therefore Mm. it's a food-like substance and let's not put it in your body. So Uh it's a very simple rule of thumb. If you can't pronounce it, your body can't. And then that kind of excludes the vast majority of highly refined foods. And there's been a number of studies that have been done on this. And I know Tim Spector has spoken um, extensively about the fact that ultra-processed foods are a major risk to health and have been linked to increased risk of a number of chronic disorders, including cancer. So that's your step one, really, is get onto whole foods. Then we're looking at the other composition, and I tend to look at it um, starting with you know macronutrients, so protein, fat, and carbohydrate. 
So certain sources of protein, they're a bit more pro-inflammatory. So refined meats, uh, particularly those really processed meats, they have preservatives in them tend to be more pro-inflammatory. And they also are linked to increased risk of some of the digestive tract cancers and also breast cancer risk, interestingly. So processed meat is out. We want to try and opt for, again, fresh protein, the best quality we can get. Then we are looking at fats and fats are really, really essential. So we want to have extra virgin olive oil as our king fat. Really, it needs to come to the top of the pyramid and it's the main non-cooking fat we should use. For cooking, like you can use extra virgin olive oil, but I tend to find this much easier to use something with a higher smoke point to avoid damaging it. So we tend to recommend avocado oil, for example. Very similar fat profile, but much higher smoke point. Um, Can I ask we, you what you what do you think about rapeseed oil? So rapeseed oil is really cooking. tricky. Um, now, technically speaking, I would love to use rapeseed oil, but I am at this point, and you might you might correct me on this, Danny. I haven't been able to find an organic, unrefined product. So you either okay. get organic refined or you get unrefined, but it's not organic. And rapeseed is one of the most sprayed crops there oh. is in the country in terms of pesticides. So. I can't reconcile myself to it because I can't get the product I want. Interesting. So that's Interesting. why I use avocado oil, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, Thank yes, you. I'd love to use it. If, so if someone comes up with an <laughs> organic, unrefined rapeseed oil, please email me because I'd love to hear about it. <laughs> but um, but the other thing is, of course, omega-3, omega-6 ratio. So that's really, really important. And a current diet has something like 20 to 40 omega-6s for each omega-3. The, our ancestral ratio, the ratio oh. we should be aiming for, is two or three to one. So we had 10 times more omega-6 in our diet than we should do for optimal health in general. And these come from these very refined seed oils like sunflower oil, which gets put into pretty much everything in, in commercial food. Um, it, and generally, we eat less omega-3 rich products, don't we, Danny? So we eat less flaxseed and chia yes. seed and wild oily fish that contains all of those omega-3s. So the, our whole ratio is quite skewed. And that's one of the major adjustments that we have. And that's one of my also slight bugbears with people who will always say, oh, yeah, okay, a plant-based diet is fine and doesn't need any extra attention. I'm like, it can be very healthy for some people, but you do need to pay really close attention to omega-3, omega-6 ratios. Because I have women coming to me with ratios of 40, 50, omega-6 to omega-3 with a cancer diagnosis. I'm like, well, that needs correcting. Wow. So that's really, really important. So that omega-6, omega-3 balance is important. And then really saturated fats are not the body, but they do need to be in moderation. They don't need to be at the major component of our diet. They need to be all in line with everything else. And avoiding any of those damaged fats, so trans fats, anything that's cooked with these omega-6 rich seed oils at high temperature, um, and those are kind of the fat bits and the carbohydrates, really making sure that it, you know half your plate is beautifully rich, colorful, rainbow food, you know, going for the biggest diversity, so 30 plants per week of any different kinds. And that's including vegetables, ideally lower sugar fruit, herbs, spices, all of that beautiful stuff on your plate. And that's going to make the whole context of your diet anti-inflammatory because it's not the food itself that counts by itself it's not a single food it's your whole context of the diet so when mm. people i don't know have a steak for example right you can have a steak and chips down your local pub with deep fried onion rings and then you can have a beautiful 
you know, grass-fed or, or whatever it is, organic steak with uh, roasted vegetables and lots of herbs and spices, chimichurri sauce on it, whatever it is. And I don't know, something else that you enjoy, whatever carb you like. Uh, and that is going to be a much more anti-inflammatory meal, wouldn't it? Really? Yeah. So it's about the context of the food. So I don't want people to get hung, get hung up on individual foods. It's about, mm. is your plate colorful? Does it contain whole foods? Does it contain a good balance of protein, fats, and carbohydrates and unrefined carbohydrates and the right fats? And that's what helps us build this anti-inflammatory diet. And of course, the refined sugars are the other bits that will come into the carbohydrate discussion. And no, this whole sugar feeds cancer. Like cancer can feed off pretty much anything, frankly. Mm. It's multiple fuel sources that will feed off. But it's, it's not about that. It is about the fact that if we consume highly refined sugars, we actually dysregulate our insulin metabolism. And insulin resistance is linked to increased risk of a number of different cancers, okay? And so is diabetes. And diabetes quite often, people with diabetes present with more aggressive and more advanced cancers sometimes. So paying attention to your sugar intake does matter. It's just not sugar feeds cancer bit, but yes. it absolutely does matter. So much of what you say really resonates to me. And actually, it's feel, I feel it's quite hopeful because I think, wow, Nina, who studied so much and who knows so much clearly, also had to redo how she lived life with your own diagnosis. And it makes it so human, this conversation, that sometimes we just lose our sort of focus of what's really essential. And that happens to so many of us. And when you were diagnosed, you were run down. You didn't live a life that was congruent to your values. And you had to put effort into moving and eating a certain way again. And if anyone thinks, oh, wow, that really resonates, what Nina says really resonates with me. But how do I know whether my omega-3s and my omega-6 are out of whack? I'd like to understand where I'm at without having to come and see you, for example, because we're all over in different places. Can we ask our normal GP to say, look at my omega-3s or omega-6, or is this where conventional medicine and integrative medicine separate? They do a little bit. And mainly this is because we just don't tend to have these tests available on the NHS at the moment. So your GP or your other primary care providers or secondary care providers will be able to run a lot of your blood tests for you. So you can look at your full blood count. They can look at inflammatory markers. They can look at your vitamin D levels, B12, folate, some of the other nutrient markers that are quite common. But there won't be, and look at your fasting cholesterol and your your the way you regulate blood sugar. So you can look at your fasting blood sugar or what we call HbA1c, an average of your blood sugar control. So they'll be able to run all of those tests. But omega-6, omega-3 ratios are not a conventional test. That's when you really need to go to a nutritional test um, okay. or what we call functional testing. Um, and that really is kind of the more the either integrative medicine doctors, functional medicine doctors, nutritional therapists will do it. There are people who are, you know, qualified herbalists who've done some other nutrition training who will do those sorts of things, naturopaths. I mean, there are a number of people who will do it. But what I would say is that whoever you pick, you just need to be really careful and have a really good bullshit detector. And, <laughs> and it, seriously, you just, you have to. Um, and, and it's important because people come to me and, and they, people are saying that they're integrative and really they're alternative. They try and push people off medication or they're trying to recommend stuff that's completely not got any evidence behind it. 
And that is not integrative medicine. That's the opposite of that. And that's mm. an alternative medicine. I don't have any problem with people what? doing things safely, but alternative medicine, when it's practiced unsafely, puts people at risk. So what I would like to say is that make sure you find someone who's done some cancer training. If you have a cancer diagnosis, you don't want to go to a general, say, nutritional therapist who maybe practices in eczema or looks after something completely different. You do want someone who's done the cancer training and BAND, for example, that's the British Association for Nutrition Lifestyle Medicine, requires their practitioners who work with people with cancer to have additional training. So make sure they have additional training, make sure you understand where, how they practice and make sure that when you read what they say, it aligns with your philosophy, because there's no mm. point in coming to see someone who comes at it from a completely different perspective to you. And also whatever anybody recommends supplements in particular, and that's you have to be really safe, is that you need to check with them. They've checked interactions with your medication. And that's absolutely essential, non-negotiable. If someone looks at you blankly, when you mention drug nutrient interactions or drug herb interactions, you need to run a country mile. It's really, really important because and that's what we do meticulously in clinic. I spent hours, unfortunately, sitting there doing these interaction checks, but that's how we keep people safe. And it gives you the confidence that whatever you are taking for whatever it, whatever need you have, is safe and effective rather than trying to go off and go, oh my goodness, I'm not entirely sure. Is it going to interact with my tamoxifen or my aromatase inhibitor, whatever it is yeah. you're currently taking. So keep keep it safe and, and keep it with a professional. Don't get long lists of stuff of the internet, you know, those big long yes, off-label drug yes, supplement yes. lists. Because to me, again, this is not integrative medicine. It's not because it doesn't integrate with anything that you do. And I had this great example come to clinic, I think it was last year. And it didn't, the plan didn't even have their name on it. It just had Sarcoma 2021. And I'm like, excuse me, hold on a second. What am I? A cancer walking around on legs? No, thank you. I have a name and I'm a human. And please don't give me a sarcoma protocol that may or may not be relevant to me in my medical conditions and my current blood test results. So I would say just avoid these generic protocols that may or may not apply to you and may or may not ruin your conventional treatment. So, and just go and see someone professionally if you can. If you can't, access charity resources. We've got Penny Brown UK, there's Yes to Life resources. There's various, uh, Future Dreams House does a lot of these things. So there's a number of different charities that have different service provisions so access them but don't try and get weird stuff off the internet is all I have to say <laughs> it's so interesting what you say because a few weeks and months ago I was planning for a podcast with Melinda and um, Anita about herbal medication and all the women that have written into me into the Facebook group and emailed what they wanted to know it was all about contraindications like that's X herb contraindicate with tamoxifen aromatase inhibitors and when I presented all these questions to Anita and Melinda. They looked at me and went, well, that's not the point of herbal medication. And so we had to go all the way back and they had to educate me on what it's all about. Because if you go and see a professional herbal medicalist, you don't have to worry about exactly. contraindications. That's the job of the professional that you put your trust in, right? And that's exactly what you're saying here. Yeah. It's building up that trust and knowing that you are going to do that work for me because I don't have to worry about grapefruit or <laughs> all of those other things that might contraindicate or not. But let's talk about that bullshit detector, because I quite like that word. And there are lots of things flying around 
I'd like to talk about supplements, but let's keep them. People talk about the Dutch test highly, and then there are doctors who say it's absolute nonsense. People talk about genomic testing, and then there are others who go, oh, it's absolute rubbish. It won't do anything for you. And I don't know. I sometimes believe it works, and it, I really believe in, yeah, if you really understand the details, that's amazing. And I think for the general population, perhaps it's unnecessary, but I don't know. What, what do you think? Let's say genomic testing. What is it? It gets flown around that word in the cancer space. <laughs> it is. And there's so many aspects to that. But let me try and unpick that. So there are definitely conventional tests we do on, say, tumors, for example, that are part of genomic testing. So for some cases, we actually sequence the whole person's genome. So there is a thing called whole genome sequencing or WGS is done conventionally, is done under Genomics England. And actually practitioners can refer rare cancers or patients who need that kind of sequencing in via the NHS to have their whole genome sequenced. Wow. And that's, that's a significant thing. And of course, out of that fall out what we call actionable variants. And there may be things that uh, predispose you to that kind of cancer or things that we need to worry about, like BRCA1, BRCA2, PALB2, CHECK2, all sorts of other big, big gene names, effectively. And so what we're looking at here quite often is the big predisposition genes and medium predisposition genes. Probably the, the, the low ones kind of suddenly sometimes get forgotten. I think they will become more and more important. And what I mean by that is that they're the genes that confer big risks, like with BRCA1, BRCA2, there's a really significant chance by age 80 that actually vast majority of people will get some kind of breast cancer, okay? So that's, there's a big risk gene. And then there's the other side of testing that is much more what we call about SNPs. And these are single nucleotide polymorphisms that we'll call SNPs, SNPs. And this, these are tiny one-letter variation in the words of your genome, okay? that may modify the way that a protein functions, the enzyme functions. And so these are a little bit like making tiny, tiny, tiny changes. So by itself, a one SNP change is not gonna confer any significant risk. But you can imagine if lots and lots and lots and lots of them add up, suddenly together, all of these variants can add up to quite a lot of risk. And what we are doing at the moment, on the conventional side is that we are adding up all those slips and we can give people what we call a polygenic risk score or PRS. So it tells you that out of all the SNPs tested, maybe you're high risk, moderate risk or low risk for a particular cancer. And that risk is also really interesting to mention is that that risk is different in different populations. So for example, I can't take the same score for me and apply to someone that has has Asian descent, for example, like someone who comes from an Ashkenazi Jew population. So we are very population specific as well with those risk scores. And that's the conventional side. Now, what I think you mean is nutrigenomics testing. And that's the stuff that kind of gets floated about a little bit. And nutritional genomics is, has two arms effectively to it. One is looking at how the genetic variants we have affect our nutrient status, maybe our nutrient requirements. For example, how we're able to process our nutrients. And the second bit is actually much more about how do the nutrients affect our genetic expression through the epigenetics, for example, and the way that this functions. So it's a little kind of circle, actually, that goes round and round. 
And so nutrigenomics testing I do use in clinic, I would say that the evidence very much depends on what kind of various SNPs you use. So those little single letters, people say to me, I come with a COMT variant and I go, okay, which one is it? Because actually where that letter is affects you more or less. So for example, it's a little bit like you sitting there reading a book and somewhere in the chapter, that crucial point, you have a missing word and you go, oh, for goodness sake. So now it's affected your reading. But to be honest, if someone removed a comma next page, would you have even noticed? No. So it's the same thing with our genes is that there are some crucial SNPs that have good evidence in affecting the risk of cancer, maybe response to certain treatments. And it's the combination of all of them together, not every single thing that really makes significant impact on risk. And is it useful? Yes. But in certain cases, and when it's interpreted properly for you by a qualified practitioner, yeah. but trying to do it yourself online, you're going to get really horribly lost. Yeah. So the 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 scenarios when it came up, it's, for example, women deciding whether they should go on hormone replacement therapy for managing their menopause symptoms with a history of cancer, not always necessarily breast cancer, but other cancers, and sometimes breast cancer. And so women think, if I had more information about genomic test results for myself, would that help me knowing how I break down my estrogen and stuff like that? All things that are so complicated to me, I don't even want to try and understand them. But for managing our menopause, when we might need medical treatments, whatever they are, hormonal or non-hormonal, are these genomic tests useful in giving us guidance? There's definitely some early evidence that a combination of certain SNPs increase the risk of uh, breast cancer with HRT. So that's, that's, that is definitely a part of what, now we're still in very early stages that we need to validate it. But there is definitely evidence that certain SNP combinations have, have an increased risk. To be really honest with you, though, if someone has a history of cancer, it's the whole picture that counts more than anything else. It's what kind of cancer have they had? How mm. extensive was it? Were they fully treated? So mm. the genomic bit, or effectively the nutritional genomics variants like their COMT or GSTM1 or whatever else they tested or MNSOD, they will play a role but it's only a part of the picture. And I really yeah. don't want people to zoom in on that. It's the whole yeah. thing, your whole treatment journey. What else are you doing? Are you overweight? Are you drinking alcohol daily? Because guess what? Those things are going to affect the risk of breast cancer from that yeah. perspective. People Massively, worry, right? mm. worry so much about the tiny detail. I'm like, yes, I love the tiny detail. I live in the tiny detail, but I also live in the zooming out and seeing the forest for the trees, right? We've got yeah. to be able to look at the whole picture. And make sure that, you know, whoever is giving you advice actually has an understanding of cancer full stop. And because yeah. actually, as we know, HRT is a complex issue. And like in some cancer types, it can actually be associated with better prognosis, yeah. like colorectal cancer, in some cancer types, it's not. And having someone who's really sensible, who also works with your oncologist is a really cu- crucial point mm. here. But I would say it's, it's like anything, it's a tool various genomic testing, whether it is testing your tumor, for example, for different genomic variants that might enable you to have specific treatment or testing nutritional genomics, all of this, these are all great tools, but they need to be a part of a sensible plan and they need to be interpreted by a professional. Otherwise you're grasping at little bits and it's a little bit like, you know, when you try to do a puzzle, but you only got a few pieces that you've kind of pre-selected yourself and go, but why doesn't it fit together? Come on. That was me for de- for a long, 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 long time, just <laughs> trying to do so much without the grand plan. 
So actually what I'm hearing from you, if someone is listening, thinking, gosh, I've been managing my menopause model for years now. I'm after cancer. I've got times where I feel okay, but times where I've got hot flushes and insomnia and terrible joint pain. Instead of focusing on tests like genomic testing to make a big difference, yes, they can be a helpful tool. It's also looking at the bigger picture and doing that consistently, isn't it? That's one of the things I found is when I consistently ate a little bit better, not great, but even a little bit better. When I consistently moved once or twice a day, I stood up from my desk and I, even if it wasn't much, it's really given me the bigger benefits that I could feel as well. Absolutely. And consistently doing things that actually have a good basis for it, because say, for example, we're talking about joint pain. So, of course, we talked about aromatase inhibitors and how they can induce a lot of that. So consistently moving has shown to have a benefit. Physical exercise is one of those things that can improve those joint pains. And so can things like acupuncture, for example. Acupuncture has been recommended in the recent guidelines that are the joint guidelines between integrative oncology, SAO, and ASCO, which is clinical oncology, conventional oncology world. And they've been recommended for the treatment of aromatase inhibitor associated joint pain. So things like that. But again, you do need consistency. So people sometimes go into treatments like acupuncture and they expect to have a benefit after one session. And as we know, it doesn't work like this. So you need really four to six sessions to start stacking up the benefit from acupuncture and then talking to your acupuncture practitioner, for example, and saying, okay, how often do I now need to come and see you? And that will be different for different people, depending on the severity of their symptoms. So things like that can be really important. You know, people talk about sometimes start cherry juice, for example, for again, can be really helpful for people who have those joint pains. Um, and there's some evidence around that. But again, it's about consistency. Like I said, it's about doing something every day. And actually, if we work on our foundation strongly, if we work on our anti-inflammatory whole food based diet, if we work on moving regularly in a way that gives us joy, that's not a punishment. It has to give us joy and it'd be fun as well. If we take care of our sleep and if we can't sleep properly, get support for it. And if we can manage our stress and manage our mind body properly, to me, those are the core foundation. Everything else is icing on the cake and it's great to do all of those mm. things. But if we don't get those four right, I don't care what supplements you take. And I don't care what else we lay on top of it. It is just not going to land on a fertile soil. We've got to take care of the basics. Gosh, thank you so much. That really sort of makes so much sense. The problem with that is it's difficult to implement that into everyday life, isn't it? So it's almost what you say has such a good and big impact. We need motivation for it. We need a, a level of sound mind of bringing energy into our days to do this for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, many times, perhaps we get it wrong before we get it right. And it's the continuous, I guess it's the continuous showing up for yourself and knowing that you're worthy of your energy. And when I first started to cook for myself, everyone said, gosh, what you spent an hour to cook yourself a meal because I didn't know how to cook before. And so everything took a long time. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Like I'm <laughs> I'm worth it. I don't spend that much time anymore because I've luckily learned to cook a bit quicker and more effectively. But yeah, it's sort of that shift in mindset, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah I think we do have to drag ourselves out from the bottom of the pile and actually reprioritize ourselves. And in a way, Unfortunately, as quite often carers, you know, women are quite often in a caring role. So in whatever way, whether we do or don't have children, whether, whether whatever age we are, we quite often are just by 
necessity do a lot of care in the world, whether it's professionally or personally. And that means that we end up at the bottom of the pile. So we need to reprioritize. We need to know that we can't pour from an empty cup and we do need to replenish ourselves because actually you can't, we can't take good care of others when we are on the floor. And it, it requires constant readjustment. You know what? I have to require constant readjustment. I have to try and have a good chat with myself, particularly because in a caring profession, guess what? <laughs> My patient's needs and someone else is going to, you know, they go to the top and then suddenly go, okay, hold on. I slipped down a little bit too far down that particular pyramid. I need to drag myself back up. And it's a constant process. And I don't think that, you know, we, we ever going to get right. I sometimes get asked, how do you keep yourself in balance? Well, I don't all of the time, because guess what? Life happens and things just hit the fan and it's a bit of a mess for a little while, but it's about saying to yourself, okay, well, treat yourself with self-compassion. If things have happened and things have slipped, it's okay. There's no point in getting beating yourself up about it. Adding guilt to anything I've never seen add any health benefit to anybody. Guilt and shame are the most toxic emotions that humans, I think, experience, actually. Um, mm. And I think it's even more toxic than anger, to be honest. But let's bring ourselves back with self-compassion and think, okay, what can I do today? It doesn't need to be big, but start with one thing. Okay, once you've got that thing down, add another thing, but don't try and do everything at once. Don't get overwhelmed and don't beat yourself up. Nobody gets it 100% right. And actually, our bodies and our minds should be able to function if we don't get it 100% right. That's called resilience, yes. right? Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that's when the worry slips in often that we think, oh, I've fallen off sort of the wagon and maybe now is my cancer going to come back. It's also very much a control thing, isn't it? Okay. Um we touched on toxins before and many people trying to eliminate toxins and not wanting chemicals and plastics and stuff like that. And that also meant that many women talk about uh, thermo oh, yeah, thermography. thermography. Yes, yeah. yes. Thermography. And because there is a worry that maybe having other breast imaging techniques might cause us more radiation. What What is th thermography? Can you talk us through that briefly and explain so really, thermography aims at looking at basically thermal imaging, so imaging of the temperature. And I'm not going to go into detail of that necessarily, but it, it's a really interesting breast health tool, but it is really not a validated cancer detection tool. And I think that's really, really important. So to have a good cancer detection tool, we have to go through quite significant testing for something like that. And we have to make sure it picks up the, the things are supposed to pick up and also rules out any of the negative results, right? And here we talk about things like sensitivity and specificity. How many positive cases can you detect and how many properly negative cases can you detect? Now, thermography has not gone through that process to be validated enough to have enough sensitivity and specificity to be used in a normal healthcare service to detect cancer or monitor progress or progress with treatment or regression of cancer in any way, shape or form. So what I say to people is like, if you want to monitor your breast health and you don't have a cancer diagnosis, that's fine. You know, you can go ahead and have a thermogram. Ideally from someone sensible is not going to recommend something crazy. But um, if you have an active cancer, you still need normal imaging. And yes, of course, we want to reduce the amount of imaging we have because nobody wants unnecessary radiation. But it's about also understanding and evaluating with your oncologist the risk and benefit of it. So saying, okay, fine. So what do I actually need? So for example, there's certain cancers for whom we need an MRI 
So lobular breast cancers being one example is that they're best monitored by certain techniques like an MRI and mammography may not be very as good for those cancers as for some of the other cancers. So it's such a much more complicated issue that people out there try and make it out to be. And what I would say is my kind of cliff note is thermography is not a validated cancer screening tool. This is not a validated cancer monitoring tool. It is a breast health tool that healthy people can go off and have, and that's fine. But it, I would never rely on it in preference to normal things like mammography, ultrasound, or okay. MRI. It's, okay. That's just really important. And the other thing that I've seen is I've uh, recent reports um, from some of the people in the nutrition community have said that people also go for these things and they get recommended additional hormones, which is really worrying for me because frankly, a thermographer who just looked at you and may even know that you have an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, then recommending a weak estrogen called in this trial, this trial and a progesterone outside of your oncologist knowledge is completely and utterly unsafe. And I've never seen a single scientific study mm-hmm saying that is trial given systemically to women with breast cancer is safe. So these kinds of practices have to be rooted out. They are not integrative medicine because in, in no way integrating with the conventional treatment that you've got. Mm. And I'm hoping that everyone who has listened to our episodes on the Menopause and Cancer podcast is wiser than do so because yes. we always talk about going back to your oncologist, going back to your specialist team, trying to find routes and access within the NHS where possible because these people have all of your information. And when you find a practitioner like yourself, I know you will liaise with my oncologist and my surgeon and anyone else in my team. And it's bringing that whole team together and always having the mindset that that team wouldn't work for me. I never felt comfortable if one isolated person would have suggested something really but I think um, also, Danny, you have a you know you have a good BS detector, and actually, a lot of people I I feel that sometimes they're being exploited when we are feeling desperate because things aren't yeah, working. Yeah, you know, and actually, that's the thing that really gets my goat and makes me angry because, from my perspective, it should be a joint effort, and in a way, we have to get all the egos out of the way as well. And I think that's something that. I'm really passionate about no practitioner's ego, whether they are your oncologist, whether they are, I don't know, your nutritionist, whoever it is, should ever come into a conversation about you. The conversation is about you, not what someone, what's worked for someone else, not what someone else's life is like, not what the practitioner themselves found works for them. It should be what works for you. And that's really important because I don't really like other people's ideologies being put into a conversation about someone else. And unfortunately, it does happen. And people are so petrified, understandably, you know, you're petrified, you do anything. And sometimes these things will do, do creep in, even if you're otherwise being very, very sensible. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's just because you are scared. And so I really hate it when people play on people's fears and recommend yeah. stuff that's utterly unsubstantiated. And in a way, your practitioner, whoever they are, whether they are your oncologist or they're your nutritionist or they're, I don't know, your TCM herbalist or your other herbalist, they should be able to justify what they're doing with you. I love mm. questions. Like I mm. love questions. Ask me questions because actually if I, if I feel def- defensive, surely that means I'm not doing something right. If I can't mm. justify what I'm doing now, we can't have perfect evidence in integrative oncology. To be honest, we can't have perfect evidence anywhere anyway, but Sometimes people's criticism is that we don't have big randomized control trials. There's big trials with hundreds of patients because guess what? 
nobody's going to fund them because we're not a pharmaceutical industry and we don't have the money to do it. But that doesn't mean that no evidence exists. We do have yeah. some randomized control trials, but we also have some of the observation trials. We have clinical experience and we have patients' preferences and needs. And evidence-based healthcare, the way it was originally conceptualized, relies on all three things. The best available clinical evidence, that doesn't mean perfect available clinical evidence. There's no such thing. Then the clinical experience of the clinician and patients' needs and preferences. Three things. Oh my gosh, I love that. Repeat those three. So I love those. The first one is best available clinical evidence. That means the best we've got, okay? And sometimes that's not great. Sometimes it's not great, but that's that's what we've got to work with, so we use it. That's what we use it. Clinical experience. So your clinician might have treated a number of people with a number of things and has a lot of experience to offer and patients' needs and preferences. And what we've done, unfortunately, Danny, is that we've taken this model and we've reduced it down to randomized control trial as king. Well, no, we need Mm. to look at all three things. That's evidence-based healthcare. Mm. And I often talk about shared decision-making so that we feel we're part of our healthcare team, not just the receiving end. Absolutely. To be honest, it's it's only you. It's your body and your mind and your life. And actually, I think that if we're not an active participant in our own health, then it's going to run away with us. And I think we do need to be questioning things. We need to make sure it's right for us. And otherwise, we get things foisted on us that we may may or may not want from wherever Mm -hmm. direction. I think it's really important to understand risks and benefits of whatever is proposed to you. Have a good discussion. Make sure it sits right with you. And if you've got an inkling anywhere in the back of your mind that I don't think this is right, articulate it. Because then you can discuss it. And there's never a fear in the back of your mind, like you said, at 3 a.m., frantically Googling things. So get it out. Speak to your healthcare professional, whoever they are. Get those fears out. Talk to them about and get a proper personalized plan that looks right for you. Mm, Thank you. I'm going to still ask you a last question. I know we're running out of time, but it is supplements because I have no bullshit detector when it comes to supplement because there are some great doctors to say, There's no point in taking supplements. We have big studies with hundreds and thousands of people, apparently, and it's shown if you take your multivitamin, there's no point. But knowing that, I still take supplements on and off. I take herbal supplements from a herbalist. I take other, of course, vitamin D. We don't need to talk about vitamin D. And so what's your take on supplements? I mean, do we supplement? Do we not? Well, the clue is in the name, supplemental, right? Supplements is supplemental. So it means they're supplemental to everything else you're doing, which is your nutrition and your lifestyle. So that's, again, I'm going to reiterate this point because that point needs to be really, really clear. Um, But what I would say is that big population studies on multivitamins are never going to give us an answer about personalized supplementation. And actually, that's what what I think is gets lost for people. So I'm going to bring up vitamin D a little bit because... Vitamin D trials are a great example of where they just chuck the same dose of vitamin D at people and then they run the trial. And like, well, you and me, for example, Danny, we have different genetic background. You might give me and you the same dose of vitamin D, but my blood levels will be completely different to yours because of the way that I activate vitamin D, I process vitamin D, I carry vitamin D in my bloodstream, et cetera. So, and and it might depend on my magnesium status, how well my my vitamin D works and how well it gets activated. It might depend on various million other things. So what I'm about is really about personalized integrative medicine. For me, 
that is a supplement necessary is not even the question. The question is, what is your need first? What are your needs or your symptoms that we are trying to address? Are there particular blood markers that are out of, out of range? If your homocysteine, for example, it's a mark of your methylation is incredibly high, you know, if it's 12, 13, 14, 15, guess what? You need methylation support, which means a specific B-complex need that we need to sort out to bring that down. If your inflammatory marks are elevated, on top of an anti-inflammatory nutritional lifestyle plan, there will be people who will get anti-inflammatory supplementation to bring the markers into range. If you're iron deficient, but there's other things that might not allow me to use high doses of iron, for example, there's a clever things that we can do with your gut microbiome to correct your iron and at which point you use supplementation. So I've had someone, which is probably a good example of that, and someone came to me after they've received really hefty antibiotics for a horrific pneumonia while they were in cancer treatment. And with no change in nutritional lifestyle, their iron has dropped. And so nobody asked why, of course, because nobody in conventional medicine very much is interested in the why, unfortunately. But I'm going, why? All right. And then we'll look at the inflammatory markers. Inflammatory markers have gone up because the gut microbiome has been disrupted significantly. And of course, this is also the inflammatory tail after the pneumonia. So then I go, okay, fine. Well, we know that when inflammation rises, your iron absorption goes down, actually. So that's important. But also we've disrupted the gut microbiome because of all of those antibiotics. So the way that I treated that person, instead of giving them hulking doses of iron, which is a conventional way of doing it, is we give mm. a tiny dose of iron, a probiotic, and some anti-inflammatory supplementation. And within less than four weeks, iron status was more normal, and her inflammatory markers have reduced significantly. Ah. So that is a personalized supplementation. But that requires proper thinking. It requires no protocols. Protocols are a swear word in my practice. The reason being is that this is how people fall down because protocols assume that you and me are the same, that we have the same blood markers, we have the same genetics, and basically we're twins and everything we do and we're joined to the hip. Actually, as we know, that's not the case. So to me, supplementation has to be personalized to need, personalized to current biochemistry, to what medications you're on, to what allergies and sensitivities you might have about a million different things. And that's why it's complicated. And people want to reduce it down and make it simple. But in the simplicity, we'll lose the truth. And the truth is that it needs a personalized assessment. I love that explanation so much. And even though as an identical twin mummy, and they have the same makeup, a genetic makeup, they are so different as well. So even then, they probably need very different. But that's what I mean, joint right? the hip, because guess exactly. what? They need to be literally walk through life together, doing exactly the same things, eating exactly the same foods, you know. Exactly. And, and you know, Tim Spector, of course, demonstrated beautifully when he took the identical twins and they have completely different glucose responses because of the different gut microbiomes they have. You know, and mm. actually we know if someone's on steroids, someone's not on steroids, they're gonna have different sh- blood sugar regulation, different response to things. So yeah, it is just it's it's beautifully complex because humans are beautifully complex. So let's not try and reduce it down. Let's swim in the beautiful complexity and let's make the best of it in terms of personalized recommendations. That is a perfect ending to our conversation. I'm going to Put where people can find you all in the show notes, Nina. Thank you so much for your time. You thank are my you for BS. what you're doing. I, I absolutely no. love what you're doing. It's wonderful to have this project. It's amazing. You are my BS detector from now onwards. <laughs> I love it. I get little emails. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Danny. 
Oh my gosh, I loved chatting to Nina because when I speak to Nina, I feel like she's giving me back some of the control, some of my power, and I can step into my power. And I really get that sense from Nina and what a wonderful doctor to be able to instill that sense of power and integrity into you, the patient. I love that about her. I also love that we have all got an inbuilt BS detector and I'm going to get mine out a bit more often. I also love how she explained how to go about supplements. I really think it's so fascinating when she talked about inflammatory markers and all the things we can do every single day to help all of our inflammatory markers, our overall health, our future health, to reduce our risks of a recurrence, to better even how we feel when we're on perhaps medication like aromatose inhibitors and tamoxifen. It just shows there is a lot we can do and I'm really grateful for her to giving the power back to us. I hope this episode has been useful. I know I'm going to re-listen to the episode with pen and paper and really, really think, what does it all mean for me? And how can I now fork out a little 2023 Danny's Health Action Plan with some of the knowledge um, Nina has shared with us today? Thank you for being here. As always, if you could rate and review this podcast, I'd be so grateful. Some people say they don't actually know where to do that. But if you scroll down on the episode, you'll see five stars. You can click and rate the episode or the podcast there, and then you could even leave a review. The challenge there is to find a username that hasn't been taken. So make something up, <laughs> dream it up. And with that, thank you so much for being here. And I can't wait to chat to you next week.